So yeah, you're listening to Coding Box. So is that going to be our new intro? So yeah, so yeah, that's actually a horrible way to do it. Like, like oh hey, too. Oh hey, you're uh, oh hey, oh hey, oh hey. I was trying to make it sound kind of natural, and I don't think that that worked. So hey, because when do you ever start a sentence with like so hey? Oh, I do all the time. Oh, bad uh, <laughs> habit. Okay, well, so hey, you're listening to Coding Box. It's uh, episode two hundred six. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you even like to find uh, your podcasts. Visit us at codingblocks.net. Uh, you can find examples and discussions. Uh, all the show notes are there. Yep. And you can send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks or follow us on the Twitters at codingblocks. Yeah. And uh, the website we mentioned, by the way, we got a bunch of sausage links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Joe Zach. I, I, I'm Michael Outlaw, but I got to say, I noticed it like, Alan never plays with my shenanigans with the intro. Like I keep trying to change it up and he's like, no, this is the script. Ain't having it. Yeah. yeah I gotta, I gotta read it, man. So it's, it's too early to mess with that anyways. Yeah. He, so he hasn't taken his vitamins yet. He can't, he can't go off script. So yeah, I'm right. the called out Alan Underwood. Hey, I don't believe in vitamins. My <laughs> wife takes them. She gets sick more than I do. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Th- this and other uh, health recommendations are all part of the show. So that's right. It's a health tips episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't take your vitamins is never not one that I would have ever expected to have heard. Yeah, I just don't believe in it, man. I think it's it's wrong. Okay. <laughs> well, here's something you can believe in, and that is we truly appreciate your reviews. So uh we got a new one in from iTunes from uh Joe Millie and Pretty good. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate those reviews. And if you uh, haven't already, you can you can leave us a review. Find some helpful links at codingblocks.net slash review. All right. Excellent. Well, on with the show. So uh, last episode, we talked about preventing lost updates. Um, or sorry. We talked about weak isolation, committed reads, and snapshot isolation. This episode, we're talking about uh, lost updates, which is a big problem that we didn't really get into uh, last episode. And, uh, you know, we, we've got a couple examples here, uh, from the book, but, um, maybe one way to explain it is, um, I forget it's too early. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they kind of already hinted at one in earlier in the book, right? Where like, if you, if you and I both read a value and then updated, try to do two updates to that value just by incrementing one to it, for example, oh, yeah. then you know, one of one of our updates is going to just uh, collide with the other one and, and basically just be a repeat of it, but not truly update the value, which was the intent of the application. So that that was an early example. Okay, so like an example, uh, so uh, you know, a tangible example would be like we both are going to increment a number by one. So I go in and read three, you go in and read three, I go in and update to four, you go in and update to four. And the answer we expected was five because, you know, we're both doing two increments, but because uh, we both read, you know, at the same time and it was valid and then we, our, our updates got applied, the, uh, the actual intent was lost. Yeah, like another, another maybe even a better example of this uh, is that if you were to update like they give the, the author gives an example of like a wiki page but i mean you could imagine this is like you know uh like a wordpress type of site or uh a confluence you know page like older versions maybe not current versions but older versions of either of those products where like you and i are both updating the page and i click save 
and I, maybe I'm working on like the top half of the page and you're working on the bottom half of the page and you click save, but because you had my old version as, as the top of the file, your save loses my update. Like you undo my, essentially undo my update. Yes. I used to work for a company that had uh, this problem a lot with uh, content management systems. And this is super naive, like way back in the day. And uh, you'd have two people like say updating the front page of a website and the, the way we had uh, the back end administration stuff, like it was all kind of on one page. So one person would go change the title. Another person would go change a paragraph and you know, they collide. It's just kind of easy to think about this stuff if you think about it happening really slow. You know, most of the time we're talking about these things happening, you know, very quickly. But if you could just kind of slow down the problem, you can imagine like, you know, people, two people going in there, both spending 15 minutes updating something. And since both of them kind of got that copy of the the, the front page to work with to start, uh, you know, the, the changes ended up colliding and someone's stuff is going to get lost. Even though with snapshot isolation, you know, there's nothing wrong that happened. This wasn't a bug. It's just because of the design, this is how it ends up happening where something can get lost. Yeah, especially for like complex data types, uh, it can it can get worse. So like, you know, if we have like a, a, a big JSON structure that you and I were both editing that might have represented what that the content of that page was supposed to look like and the update only just took the entire JSON blob as one whole thing, then any change that I made could be overwritten by your change because you had this older version of it. You know what we did about the, our problem? And this is, this is before Ajax. This is before they even, we did Ajax, let alone called it things other than Ajax, right? Uh, what we did is uh, you would fetch the data from the front page to the, the administration panel. And then when you click save, we'd go to see if someone else has updated it. So it's kind of like a, you know, a crappy version of snapshot isolation. And so one of those people would be working on changes for a half hour and they click the button and it wouldn't work and say someone else has modified this before your changes are discarded. And uh, everyone hated that. But I think they actually referred to something like that in this portion of the book. Um, and I'm trying to remember yeah. it was like, maybe it was the compare and set where like, um, well, not exactly like what you're doing, but they were talking about in the compare and set version of that where you could only do the update if the old value equaled what you originally thought that it was. Yep. So in your, your numerical example of like, uh, up, you know, we both queried the value and got a three, the second update couldn't update because the value no longer equaled three. It would have been four. So that second update would have failed, which would be a way to, to get around what you were just describing with the web page. Yeah, you know it still does that. Like I know that we've all been on like a Confluent page, uh, the new wiki that that a lot of people end up using, and you'll all the time like when you go to save something, hey, there's been changes to this page. Are you sure you want to save them? It's like, yeah, no. they can lose theirs. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, yeah but it's error miss. It's, it's never been clear to me whether they're losing it or not. I, I know. I've never. I've never known either. Like I seriously wonder. Yeah, it's gotten smarter about like merging those changes in with what your current edits are. Or, yeah. or you know what's funny about updates. them compare set two is uh it's not an error if zero records are updated. Or you know, if you're updating multiple and only four of the five get updated or something, so it's up to the application to to know to check correctly. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. This is interesting. I think that was like where there's kind of like a shift in in the book though was, was starting with this chapter where like, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the 
up to now in the book, it's been talking about like how a database system, you know, regardless of what it is, uh, you know, whether it be relational or not, but how that system can solve a lot of problems for you. Right. And, and so like leading this pathway of like, Hey, here's, here's things that, you know, it was originally documented in the seventies, but not implemented until 2010. But, you know, of like, uh, things that could, could save the application developer a lot of time. But this, this particular portion of the book, it really felt like it was getting into like, well, here's scenarios where there's only so much that can be done for you. There's going to be some things. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's going to be some things that you, you're going to, you're going to have to do on your own. That's not to say that the book doesn't get into some parts of, you know, how some of this can be handled, but, um, by you know as a whole this portion really felt more like okay as an application developer you need to be aware of what you want to do but it also kind of made me think too that uh there was kind of like this underlying theme too of like well you need to think about and plan out like how you write uh stuff down to whatever that storage mechanism is too because that can have a big impact on it like i'm kind of getting ahead um a little bit so i'll I'll save some of those thoughts but yeah all right. There are a couple so, things that uh, database can do. Uh, a couple, you know, a couple rough solutions that have some trade offs. Uh, one is atomic writes. So some databases uh, support atomic updates that effectively combine the read and write. So we talked about that increment. So imagine if that was just one operation. And so, uh, you know, the up- update and, and uh, what you call it, the read and update uh, happen at the same time, which can happen for simple values. We mentioned it before. So increment is a great example of something that's easy to do uh, as things get more complicated, it gets a little tougher. Uh, cursive stability that's locking the read object until the update is performed that's kind of like what i talked about where like two people kind of went into the same page chance chances are that they didn't click the button at the same you know exact time in my case anyway so one thing we could have done is check to see if there was a lock ahead of time saying hey this person's got this locked already so you should probably you know hold off or talk to them uh single threading forcing all atomic operations to happen serially through a single thread um, so this is basically making everything run through one mechanism. Uh, so it literally happens serially. This is the safest, but it doesn't distribute very well. I mean, this is, this is all about distributed data and, you know, making things scalable. So if you've got one, one little thread that everything's got to go through and a lot of transactions to pop through, then this is not going to be a good solution. Yeah. So both those last two that you mentioned, the cursor stability and that, that single threading, like both of those are probably fine in, in a smaller or a lower transaction database, right? But as soon as you start getting some real traffic, you start seeing deadlocks and all kinds of things that start happening that are really bad and and basically make applications unusable and unstable at some point. Hey, you know, one thing um, people kind of uh, maybe don't realize, especially you see this a lot with streaming, but like people don't think about sometimes is um, falling behind can effectively uh, mean stopping. It, it, because what happens is like if you start falling behind, you can't keep up with the load. It's possible to get in a condition where you will never catch up because you're falling behind faster than the data is able to recover. And so, uh, falling behind uh, doesn't sound as bad. It just sounds like it's a little bit late. But if you can't catch up, then it's a lot worse than that. At some point, I'm going to do enough of these episodes to where I will stop being embarrassed when I like learn something new for the first time. I don't think so. But I haven't gotten there yet, so I'm still like embarrassed that I learned something new while reading this. Like something that I felt like, oh man, I probably should have known that for a long time and never knew. Which one was this? 
So, <laughs> so, so I'm embarrassed to say, but the select for update, oh, yeah. I never knew that was a thing. I'm like, oh man, that is awesome. Like, I wish I had known about that. Although that that's basically doing the cursor stability more or less, where it's it's locking the read rows, and it's amazing. But again, as soon as you have a database that has a lot of activity in it, like you start causing all. And you know, here's the worst part: is if you've never actually dealt with deadlock problems, like man, it it will lead you down some paths that you're like how in the world do I figure out what's going on? And then what you realize is you've got thousands of database queries running, you know, every second and you start seeing this stuff and you're like, well, okay, now we've got to rethink exactly how we do everything. Right. And that's rough. I, I don't mean to say it as like, Oh, this is going to be the new solution to every, yeah. you oh, know, totally. I'm going to bake yeah. it into every one of my queries, but it was totally. more like, yeah, you know, I could see where if you were selecting like, a bunch of rows, you know, that that could be that could cause deadlock problems. But like for onesie twosie rows, I'm like, oh, that that's probably a pretty smart thing that I should have, you know, I should have already been doing in the past and haven't been. But yeah, all right. So I'm no, up. it's funny. I bet a lot of people know about the with no lock because right. like, oh, we <laughs> yeah. want to yeah. we want to get rid of these deadlocks, but they don't realize. I mean, I think that's for me is the the thing that you sort of pick up as you're going through this stuff too. Is I mean, sort of like you're saying, it's almost a little bit embarrassing. Is you know somebody went and found this with no lock, and then you start using it everywhere, and then you don't realize the types of problems you're introducing right. because you're doing it. You know, that's my old friend with no lock. I yeah. mean, that's. That one gets baked into every query. <laughs> uh, that's just a select statement. I don't need to lock on anything yeah, so right. with no lock. Like I'm, yeah. I'm doing it as a safety mechanism. I, listen, I'm the application developer here. I know what I'm doing. That's right. Trust me. Do I know what I'm doing? I know what I'm doing. Yeah, uh, you know, they say it's like uh, it's kind of just a suggestion. You know, like ultimately it's up to the you know query optimizer and the other rules of the database to kind of enforce that. But oh, right. I, every time I write, that, I'm just like. I kindly suggest that you do what I tell you. <laughs> right. Forcefully. Yeah. Either you do what I tell you or I will find a database system that will. Yeah. Right. I so suggest. Uh, all right. So what we got up next here? Uh, yeah. So another solution is uh, explicit locking. So basically uh, that and the kind of similar to talked about before the application can be responsible for uh, explicitly locking certain objects. So uh, placing responsibility in the dev hands. And that's where we say, basically, you know, we're locking the front page for edits and uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's okay in certain situations. Um, it, the example they gave uh, was like a multiplayer game where each player can move a shared object, which um, I actually had a hard time thinking of this. I'm like, you know, I know games, right? Like, what is this example? But the only way I could think of is like a, something like a factorio where like I can place a factory and either one of us can move it. And so, you know, that's a definition of a shared object. So if we both try to move it at the same time, then we need to uh, basically lock, you know, it would be a good idea for the application to lock it so that one person grabs it and it's locked. And then you do that for UI reasons because we don't want to both be trying to do the same thing and not realize that it's not going to work until the end. And you want to know as soon as possible so the game can kind of make that a good experience. Yeah, I had I had trouble trying to wrap my head around the the game example too because I kept thinking like, you know, my my go-to game would be Overwatch and I'm like, "Well, I mean, I guess we technically can't stand in the same spot." So, yeah, that makes sense. But the when I I would dumb it down to like a game that might 
be a little less complex than my go-to was either a chess or checkers type of game yeah. where it's like, okay, here's a very specific uh, quadrant, you know, or, or, you know, area of the board that can't be uh, consumed or, uh, you know, ha- have two players on at the same time. I'm surprised you guys like struggle with this one. Like I overwatch, you can't pick up a weapon or, well, I guess I don't know if overwatch, you can pick up weapons, but like call of duty, like there's a weapon laying on the ground. Like somebody got there and somebody got it first. The other person can't touch it. Right. Like that's, that was kind of how I thought about it because it makes sense. Right. Like, Hey, if this, if, if somebody comes down and gets this particular gun laying on the ground, that's locked, right? This next person doesn't matter if he came a millisecond later, it's done. He can't touch it. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's a good uh, point. You know, what's funny though about that. They talk about this later too, but, um, the example I mentioned where you like pick up something and move it and both players could just try to pick up and move it. So you can lock the object that you try to pick up and move. But what if we're both moving two different objects? Like, are you going to lock the whole world while we're both moving to try and make sure that we don't put them down in the same spot? Like, how do you lock the, destination i'm gonna go to yeah that's that's harder this is this is a part of the reason why i had problem with the game example though too is that like the games that we've described are like such fast-paced kind of game between overwatch and and call of duty like those are fast-paced games so i'm like well it's not like they're writing to a database of like what is available and what isn't available they're not writing to a database so that was part of the reason why i'm like i can't like i needed something like well what would be an example of something that might be a little bit slower to Mm -hmm. where you know, maybe it makes, I don't really think that it makes sense even in the chess and checkers, but you know, that was as good as I could get. Yeah. Uh, Diablo one actually had terrible problems with, uh, with duping. So, uh, you could easily dupe objects, by like basically, um, you know, dropping on the ground and picking up over and over again. Like sometimes it would get duplicated. Mm. And so it was common to be like, Hey, can, uh, can, can you hop on a multiplayer game with me? Like you host the server server to increase the latency. So then my friend would hop onto my server by dialing up to my house and then they would be like, they're trying to dupe items and it would work a surprising amount of the time. That's awesome. Dial up. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, we mentioned problems with, uh, with lost updates, but uh, like you need to be able to tell when that happens, right? That's the kind of scary part is like in two people dupe an object or, uh, you know, you can imagine all sorts of cases like incrementing a bank accounts balance or something. If you don't realize that a mistake was made and the update was lost, like that's really bad. Right? there's no audit, you know, it's really tough to unwind unless your uh, accountant or whatever is going to start looking through the transaction log, which uh, if they're doing that, all hope was lost. Uh, <laughs> it really made me like think of, uh, which going back to the history of the name transaction, I believe we said that it had to do with, you know, banking or financial type, uh, uh, it came from that kind of background, right? Like why we call it a transaction in a database. Right. But it really made me think of like all the complexity, like the needed ability to like have audit trails and to verify that like you can't have a lost update, right? Like that, that's not an option, (laughs) you know, like how do we protect against that? Like all, all of that type of, uh, you know, the requirements of like, Imagine, imagine, you know, talking about a bank, you know, okay, no big deal. Cause you know, my one individual account might not get that many transactions per second. Your individual account might not get that many transactions per second. And it, but even if you were to go to like a large scale bank, you know, okay, fine. They might get a large, a lot of transactions per second, but that's really nothing when you compare it to like the number, like on a stock market, for example, 
mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the number of transactions in that are flying through and their need for like keeping things accurate and reliable, especially when, you know, they try to get as close to the source servers as possible with as, you know, low latency, a connection as possible so that they can, uh, you know, be as up to date as possible. And so that was like the example of like, um, high speed financial kind of transactions where you cannot afford to be wrong. Yeah. You know, a lot of those stock market stuff, um, they look at like trade volume, just the amount of trades happening and stuff. And so there's all examples where like there's even simple increments that are important that you don't want to lose. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we talked about snapshot isolation, how um, you can keep a like basically a, a transaction ID on the data to let you know like when the last thing was to update it. So that's you know one solution we could have here is basically fail an update where the transaction ID on the data we're changing is higher than our transaction ID. It's just I read that and I was like, oh, problem solved, right? What's the problem? Uh, it does allow for uh, the, the applications to be dumber. Basically, that the code is going to fail when it tries to update, but you don't have a, a lot of really you don't have a lot of flexibility. Your option there is uh, someone has updated this data. Do you want to try and retry it again with the current data, or do you want to give up and you know like have that application reevaluate? This uh, is your is, web pages uh, solution. Yep. Oh, yeah, your so, updates yeah, are lost because it was already updated. Right. Yeah. Like, and you can I, hit save again and you'll get the new lock and overwrite their changes. But I write, you have I to write, reload the page, right? Like I'd imagine you'd have to reload the page to get a new. new that's what we would make the them do. But the, I mean, you can imagine a case where they didn't make them reload and be like, are you sure you want to save? Yeah. 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 Bye. <laughs> I, I, I wrote three pages of new of additional new content and Alan corrected one comma mistake. And yeah. his comma mistake causes me to lose everything I've done. You can see where a user would be like a little frustrated in that type of situation. A little yep. bit. Uh, but you can imagine, you know, like, so the, I, we, we talked about having different options. So if the database didn't automatically fail it, if it saw a transaction, it could go back to the person and say, hey, there has been a change. Do you want to override it or do you want to reload the page? And those are things we can do if we give the application more control. Uh, so we kind of lose that with the transaction ID. But it's probably okay. Uh, we did, did, did have to uh, take a little note in the book to throw a little bit more shade towards my SQL uh, in ODB, which is, as far as I know, still not the default uh, storage engine. I don't remember. But um, they mentioned that, they've mentioned there were repeatable reads a couple times uh, and mentioned that it does not support uh, this kind of, um, I forget what they call it, but basically comparing the transaction ID of the current transaction to the transaction ID stored on the uh, data to be uh, modified so some people say it doesn't qualify as snapshot isolation hey so nodb is the default okay it didn't used to be it used to be at my isom they have yeah they have my isom they have memory csv archive black hole they have a bunch but nodb currently is the default and i assume it's because it supports acid or you know (laughs) mostly supports acid (laughs) from what we're finding out in this book yeah, I don't think my ISIM uh, supported distributed transactions. I forget. I, I just know um, back in the day when I used to set up my SQL for like websites, I had like a little note there. It's like uh, create my ISIM, create my SQL, make sure to change the uh, storage engine to NODB. Yeah. The 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 thing that you couldn't remember what it was called though was just like the ability to detect lost updates. Yeah. Period. I don't. Yeah, it's I, kind they of never they, they never referred to that as like any other like feature name that I saw okay. that I recall. Okay, so what if your database doesn't uh, even support transactions at all? 
Um, so, you know, no snapshot number. Uh, you know, this is where we talk, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit here and said, you know, your best option there is compare and set, which is, you know, where you can kind of take the value and say like, hey, I'm updating three to four, assuming the data is still three for this ID. And then you you have the option of you failing, or we mentioned you know you'll you'll get that um, it won't fail. It'll just say zero records updated, and so it's up to the application to say was there an update actually applied to records. So you need that kind of functionality built in. Could you imagine if you had to live in that world where every one of your <clears throat> your SQL statements, regardless, of, I'm going to say SQL generically. I don't care what the storage mechanism is, be it a Kafka or an Elastic or Mongo or you know SQL Server. If every one of your queries, update queries, you had to pass in the old value because you were going to like, you know, it was going to be part of the predicate, but then you also had to get the value of the records updated to make sure that you're updating the intended number of records, like the additional complexity that you would have to add into your application. I mean, it sounds awful and painful, and I'm sure there was a time where like that thing was done, but like this is, these are... You know, just, this is just another example of the shoulders that we're standing on of the giants before us that that solved these problems, so that we don't have to do that. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like it's terribly hard, but geez, the boilerplate boringness of it, garbage, and like how easy that boilerplate would be to mess up, even if you tried to abstract it away as like, okay, there's a common library or whatever. You know, whatever your whatever way you're going to try to justify it to yourself that like, no, I can solve this problem easy. Like, it still sounds awful. <laughs> yeah. And you're wrong. So back in the day, I, you know, I mentioned like working on the web stuff. I was working with Cold Fusion back then. And uh, th- around then is when the ORM started coming out, like the first kind of ORMs I remember uh, using. And it was really common with the, the earliest ORMs to be really uh, heavily focused on objects. So you would like get the table object, you would modify your column and then you say dot save. And it wasn't the earliest ones weren't smart about what values you updated. It would update the whole record. So stuff was getting lost all the time. It was such a common problem because people were, you know, modifying enabled or something. And uh, it was <laughs> the whole record would get overwritten by somebody who, you know, was changing the title. It was, it was bad, bad news. Well, that and there was a time where the three of us worked on a homemade ORM. Joy. <laughs> if you recall that bit yeah. of fun. Yeah. I don't mean to like, you know, cause you to twitch any more yeah. than you already do, but <laughs> throw that thing in the trash. <laughs> yes. That's right. <sighs> All right. Yeah, so, um, one thing that kind of sinks is that well, most of the examples we've been talking here kind of assume like a, a simple setup with, uh, without replicas. Um, once you start talking about adding replicas in a true distributed database, then uh, lost updates get much tougher because, you know, the, the snapshot ID on the record on this replica could be different from that replica. It could be different on the leader. And so um, comparing, comparing set strategies and locking strategies uh, get a little bit tougher. And so uh, <laughs> there's not a whole lot you can do. And this is uh, outlaw. I was talking about this out of the book. Kind of says, like, this is the situation you're in. There's not a lot the database can do for you. So kind of the most common strategy here for these databases is to just accept the rights and have an application process to decide what to do. So either you write something or maybe maybe they have something that can kind of scan for problems and try to fix it up. But uh, no, it just gets into like oopsie mode. I think the, the, the real takeaway, though, is know your application's requirements. 
because going back to that financial example, right? If the strategy, uh, if you're going to go with a distributed database and the strategy is like a last right wins or, you know, some kind of merge strategy, like mm, that might not be what you need, right? Like that might not meet your requirements. So you can't just be in the game of, well, this is the thing I know. So that's the thing I'm going to use for all of the problems I have. Right. Yeah. Yep. You know, what's funny is when, when you mentioned the distributed databases and, and how things start falling back to the application instead of letting the database decide, because how can it, right? Like it's not going to know the right answer for everybody's situation. I remember there was a, a clear point in time where I used to be in favor of putting the logic in the database, right? Stored procs, whatever. Like that was, that was where I lived because that was the, the heart of the application. And I believe it was when we did, um, domain driven design when we went through all that that i was like you know what it does make a lot more sense to put this in the application because for for several reasons one um you have it in source control which is amazing which you can also put store proxy stuff in there but the other was your application logic can scale even if your database can't right and and that was always my big thing is there's one place you that it can always go back to and if you know your application is supposed to be doing something, it's supposed to be the brains of it. That's where that logic should live. I, I mean, I definitely recall those those episodes where we've we've described that and talked about like you know using like you mentioned stored procedures specifically, like using stored procedures to do everything. And we kind of put it in the context of like you know keep your data your logic about your data close to your data was mm-hmm. you know maybe so. I, but I think that like I've kind of evolved to the point where it's still a sometimes like maybe that, maybe, yeah. maybe that makes sense. I'm not an always put it into the app layer. Cause there might be certain situations to where like, well, this example is fine. Yeah. Right. I would it, agree. it depends totally. on what this scenario is and, and maybe even parts like what the technologies are involved are, you know? I thought, uh, like a good example of like, uh, kind of the kind of checking application process might be is, um, you know, like ACH, uh, what's that something check clearinghouse? Basically, it's, uh, whenever you write checks, uh, and you can even think about credit card companies, like you'll see, like if you go and pay for gas at a gas station or something, that might show as pending for a couple of days before it actually goes through. And so I, I don't know why they do that, you know, but one, one explanation could be that you've got, uh, you know, all these kind of transactions flying by. And before those uh, transactions are actually committed to these accounts, there's a process that goes through like every 24 hours or something that says, okay, we think this is right. Now let's go through and just double check all those accounts to make sure that the numbers still add up. So all the debits and the, you know, uh, what you call it, credits all add up to zero and all these modified accounts. And, you know, maybe that takes a couple hours and if it doesn't work, they try again, you know, and, and keep doing it until it goes through. And so it can take, you know, days for these transactions to go through. Now, I'm, you know, I'm kind of <laughs> making some guesses here and I don't, I haven't thought too much about it, but just kind of the, the idea of having this like kind of accountability pass or um, reconciliation phase that goes through and make sure everything's good before we commit it. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's sort of like a batch thing at the end, but I mean, better safe than sorry. Right. Yeah. All right. Break. Well, let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Got him before Jay-Z did. <laughs> so I kind of already hinted at this before, but uh, if you haven't left us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. If you did take time out of your busy day, uh, 
you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And, and, you know, or email us, you could email, uh, comments at codingblocks.net. We've gotten some uh, great ones. In fact, I forgot that we did recently get one in, if I recall. Um, shoot, I forgot to include that when we, when we gave our thanks. So, um, it was, it was car, cars and Dax. Am I saying, I don't know. I'm probably saying that wrong, probably but, it. um, but yeah, so, so it doesn't have to necessarily just be in like your app of choice. Um, you know, it, it could be, you know, email, you could hit us up on Slack, Twitter or whatever, but we, we really do get some truly, uh, heartfelt and inspiring, uh, feedback from, from all of you. So we do really appreciate it. It really does mean a lot. It really does help keep us going and uh, help to keep us motivated. So, uh, again, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And with that, I don't think it's just mine. I think I want to say it's everyone's favorite. It's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Survey says when I grow up, I'm going to be a game show host. Hey, I'm, I'm on a streak just so you know. Of one, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of one, pretty good speak. I'm on a one game winning streak. You can every, double it here. <laughs> every streak starts somewhere, right? That's right. All right. Well, uh, this is uh, this is episode two hundred six. So, according to uh, Tateco's trademark rules of engagement, Jay Z, you are up first. So you okay. can you could uh, break his spirits early. All right, I'm, I'm going to try to win this time. Okay. Yes, if you would put some effort in, we would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. All right. For what reason might you choose not to go to a new restaurant even after someone recommended it to you? Price. Price, okay. Well, that's really good. You don't like the type of food. Uh, the type of food, okay, okay. So number one answer on the board, Price. bad reviews online for Ooh, 33 okay. Okay. okay, wow. Number one. Okay, so I'm not going to get slaughtered here. Number two answer, too expensive or the budget. All right. 21 points awarded to Mr. Joe right. What's up? <laughs> too far away is the third answer at 16. Oh, Don't trust the recommender at number four for 15. Oh, number five God. answer is no babysitter for seven. I lose. Wow. Alan? I lose. You ready? Number six answer on the board. Not like cuisine for five points. So let me not. How do you spell in, five again? Okay, there we the go. In the hole. In the hole. Did I, did I get the comma in the right place? The decimal? Okay. Five <laughs> points gonna, for Alan. There's going to be an overwrite <laughs> error here. <laughs> <laughs> A lost update. That's right. <laughs> Last right wins. Okay. Uh, a bad part of town for three uh, points was the last uh, answer on the board for that. All right. So, uh, Alan's streak is off to a great start. Yes. Okay. <laughs> totally not. My plan is working. <laughs> All right. So, we go to Alan. Name a reason you might call a taxi. Go to the airport. Airport. Okay. All right. I'm going to go with inebriated. Okay. Oh, got it. Yes. I'm not sure how to take Alan's answer in. Um, I kind of, I, I know where I'm, I kind of want to stand, 
on this. So I'm going to give you the answers first, and I'll tell you where uh, I think Alan's answer is going to stand. Oh. Number one answer on the board is needed a ride or no car for 46 points. Wow. Oh, you said needed a taxi. That's what I should have said. <laughs> right? Name yeah. a, no, name a reason you might call a taxi, not need a taxi. Yeah, but it's oh, needed. Why am I call a taxi? Because I, I need it. Yeah, I need yeah. a taxi. Number two answer on the board for 24 points impaired. All right. Dang it, man. Yeah. Number two. Number three answer, lost or no directions for nine. Hard to find parking, number seven. And I think that's pretty airporty. Number five answer on the board is not enough space in car for four points. It feels and like it would have been the number one answer. I'm going to go with what's <laughs> going to be a controversial decision here, but I think that needed a ride would best fit Alan's answer of you need, you need a ride to the airport. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't know you could just be like, (laughs) call a taxi. If you need to call a taxi. Wait, what? I didn't think, I didn't think you could do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the question was, why would you call a taxi? Well, cause you need one. Yeah. (laughs) That was the number one answer. (laughs) You need a ride. Yeah. I I need a ride. Well, oh, yeah. Why else would you call a taxi? Like, right. I forgot my wallet in the taxi. Number right. two. Okay. <laughs> okay. I see where we're going with this. All right. I, at any rate, I think that that was. Th- this is why I was torn because yeah. there, you know, I'm good the, with it. The destination wasn't like one of the choices here. So I like I like your your choice though. I guess I, 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 I kind of sound reasoning, reasoning, but yeah, sound I'm reasoning. trying to be as impartial as possible. Um. So I gave you I gave you what the options were so you could see where my head was at. But I, that was the one that I was immediately uh-huh. thinking aligned with best. Keeps okay. the game interesting. It does. Because <laughs> otherwise it was a blowout. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we are now uh, 51 to 45 in Alan's favor. Okay. And as is tradition, Joe, you get to pick the choice of the next question. And your question choices are... Name something you might be asked to bring to a friend's party or name the most annoying thing other drivers do on the road or what is the most expensive thing you've ever bought while married without telling your spouse first? So you pick the question. Okay, so uh, he's not picking number three because if Sarah, li- if, yeah, no if way. she listens to this, he's in no trouble. Way. I'm in trouble. Yeah, no way. Uh, what was the first one again? That was um, name something you might be asked to bring to a friend's party. Friend's party. Okay. Um, so, so friend's party we, or driving or buying something. Geez, I think I, I'm going to regret this with driving. I name the most drive sometimes. Mo- name the most annoying thing other drivers do on the road. That's your uh, that's your go to. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Like there's several op- several answers. What's the most annoying? Mm-hmm. Most annoying. I'm going to say lack of turn signals. Turn signals. Okay, lack of turn signals. So that might be mine, but I think with the onset of phones, it's now people sitting at green lights. <gasps> oh, not sitting going. At green not lights. going. Okay. The green light. That happens a lot now. God, I'm yeah. so glad I gave Alan the 46 points on the last one. 
Because it makes this I'm one losing. interesting. No, oh. no, no. I didn't say, I'm saying like, it makes it interesting, right? Like you can feel the tension. Like you want to know what I said. Cause, cause if, if, if I didn't, then it would have been like 45 to five and, and like, <laughs> what kind of comeback would that be? Right. Right. So it's so much more interesting now that it, there's only like a six point gap. Hmm. Which way do I want to answer these? Oh, okay. He's just, so he's going to let it linger. That's awesome. So, so let me say, I was really surprised that you did not say the number two answer on the board, Alan. Cut you off. Oh, yeah. yeah. For 26 points. Number three answer on the board is speed for 13 points. People get irritated about that. Come on. Oh, how slow slow they're going. Yeah, Yeah. how slow. Yeah. Well, no, drive too slow is the fourth answer on the board for 12 points. Wow. Okay. Tailgate is the fifth answer for seven points. The seventh answer on the board is loud music for three. Now, to the astute listener, <laughs> the average you will age notice, of that answer was. <laughs> you will it's not even music, it's just the bass. Yeah. For, for the astute listener, you will notice that I did not yet say what the number one answer was, nor did I say what the number six answer was. No. So, number one answer on the board. Not use turn signals. 28 points on the board. Mr. Joe Zach. Glad I got to go first. Hot garbage. <laughs> use, use cell phone, which is what I was going to classify your stoplight one since yep. you said that, yep. uh, using the cell phone. Four points on the board. Four. There's no way people are only that bad about that. So, Daily. so, uh, Alan's winning streak of one just got squashed. <laughs> It is now Alan's longest winning streak. Oh, it will go down in the history books of survey says as a uh, longest winning streak of one. Jay-Z <laughs> wins. I did try to win today. 73 yeah. to 55. And right. You know what? I call bunk on the uh, turn signals because nobody uses them. So how could everybody be that mad about it? Yeah. Nobody but, uses them. Everyone complains about other people not using them. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, That's how the most complain? annoying thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like not somebody who does about what vote. you do. It's complaining about what other people do. Oh, it's so ridiculous, man. But I swear to you, every day I get behind somebody that's sitting at a green light with their head down, looking at their phone. And, and I, there's people that honk at them nonstop. Like I've gotten up with traffic lights where people are laying on the horn as soon as the light turns green because they just don't want to deal with it. But you know why that people aren't annoyed by that, though, is that the person honking is like car number eight. But cars one right. through seven are all looking at their phone. They're None of them phone. have noticed yet. So <laughs> you're right. So only one out of eight were annoyed. You know the part that gets me, and then we get on with the show. What drives me insane is when they finally look up from their phone and the light's yellow now. Oh, right. And they're the one car that squeaks through. And you're like, dude, (laughs) if I could catch you, I don't know what I'd do, but but I would would be mad. (laughs) In your mind, you're thinking, listen, sir, I have a certain set of skills that I've acquired for a long career. That's right. Uh, My name is Jason Bourne. Yeah, born. Do you wait a minute? Your pop culture references are off. Do you not know which movie I was referring to? No, I don't. Which one was it? Was it? Wait, wait, wait. Knowing you, it's got to be Pulp Fiction or something like that. No, I mean, I I like I like where your head. First of all, thank you 
for that that kind compliment that it would be like knowing me, you know, be some Pulp Fiction because that's like one of the greatest movies of all time. So yeah, uh, fair. But no, I was I, it was the Taken series. Oh, with Liam man, Neeson. I haven't seen that in like 15 years, man. But, but I'll remember because because that that's that quote was like so uh, iconic to the movie and has been parodied so much. Man, the way I remember that stuff. Uh, I barely remember in a galaxy far, far away. Like that's oh, from Star know. Trek. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's amazing! I'm gonna get some hate mail now. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> All right, so I guess we'll pick back up here. So the last thing we talked about was the conflict resolution and replication. So now we're getting into right skew and phantoms. Um, so this one's kind of interesting. This is this is nuanced um, off our past stuff. So right skew is when there's a race condition that occurs that allows rights to different records to take place at the same time that violates uh, uh, some sort of constraint on state. So the best way I know how to put this is kind of what we've been talking about up to this point is people modifying the same record, right? And so when you modify the same record, there's things that you can do even in the database layer that, that takes care of those for you. However, what if, you are you're basically writing a lock to something, but you create a record for it. So so Joe goes to create something, and so he tries to write a lock record into a table. And Outlaw tries to create something at the same time, and it creates a write a write lock record in that table. Well, there's no constraint on the database that says you can't have two records in the same table. So now you have this situation to where this happened because these both started about the same time. And it's the same situation we talked about before. You read something and said it was good. And so then you continued with your transaction. And they actually gave an example in the book that I thought was pretty good. Basically, they had um, doctors on call, right? And if you have a, a doctor scheduling system, you always have to have at least two doctors on call. And that's because if one of them gets sick or whatever, you still have another one available, right? Well, what if two doctors at roughly the same time end up starting feeling like they're sick and they go in to say, hey, I'm not on call, you know, take me off call. Well, if they read the state of the of the system at the time it started, there were two doctors on call, right? Well, they both get that state back and now they say, okay, well, then we're going to make us off call. And so both those records get written at the same time. And now you have no doctors on call because the state of the system, when it started, the transaction was good. So it, it's so, the same type situation, but you're writing to multiple records is the problem. So it's not a lost update because both updates were made and preserved, they have which was the it. other problem of writing to, overwriting a value to the same record. It's just that this, the right skew here is that, this is where application logic is bleeding into your storage layer, right? Yep. The the applications logic requires that the two doctors be on call, but it's not a database constraint, so therefore there's no storage violation of it. Right. So you can get into this situation. 
Yep. And they even called out, you know, hey, if if Dr. One had gone into the system and the system was saying, hey, there's two doctors on call or, or more than two on call and they went and took themselves off call. And then right after that happened, the other one did it, then everything would have been fine, right? Because when that second doctor read the system, it would have said, hey, there's only two doctors on call. You cannot go off call. So that would have been fine because the transaction would have completed. But when they both open it roughly the same time, that's where you start having these problems. So, um, And they say that this particular right skew thing is sort of a general generalization of that lost update problem that we were talking about before. Um, really the nuance here is you're dealing with multiple records instead of one. Yeah. This one, this one during this part of the, the book, I was thinking in my head, like, well, I wonder if there's a way that you could restructure what that on call schedule would look like at the storage layer so that you could enforce, uh, a constraint, for example, like they talked about, uh, materialized views as being like possibly one way to, to, if I recall correctly, they, you know, using a materialized view is one way to uh, potentially uh, solve this type of issue or, or to ensure that you don't get into this situation. But I was thinking like, well, I wonder if there's a way that you could just write it out to where it is a single record that is being maintained. So this is tough, right? Like they don't go into this in the book, like what you're talking about here. Um, I'm always torn on that. Like, do you try and, make your storage layer look a particular way to support a business case that you're trying to do, because at some point that breaks down, right? Like whatever your business case is right now, sure. You designed it. It works for that, that business case, but then at some point they end up having to add another business case to it and your storage structuring no longer works well for that. So, so should you try and do that? You know, well, here, here's what made, made my head go in that place, though, was that the, in the example in the book, you know, they, the author includes some example, you know, sequel of what m- this might look like, right? And, of course, we don't know, like, all of the structure of that. You know, we just have, like, a, a statement. But the table name in question was called Doctors. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, man, that seems like a horrible place that you would also store on call, information that seems like it should just be generic information like these are the doctors that serve this office right with like you know hr type information not an on-call schedule and that's why i was like started thinking in my head like well i wonder if there's a better place you know a better way that you could structure that type of need and then that way you could have the database help you out here rather than you know, maybe you're just putting like more than is necessary in this one table, but I mean, it's way beyond the scope of what the author was trying to get. I mean, like he, you know, he, I, I'm overthinking it. I, I, I get, I grant you that, but you know, yeah. what, the whole purpose of this book though, like as you're reading it, like in my mind, I keep trying to think like, okay, well, how could I, how would I do this? If I were to like write this out to uh, a flat file system, how would I do this? Whatever. And so in this particular part of the book, it was like, well, how might I be able to, sh- maybe this is a case uh, you know, this specific example is a case of like you're structuring the data wrong in the, in the database. Yeah, that's totally possible. Like I said, the, the only thing that sticks in my head when I start looking at things like this now, though, is it's easy when you're designing for today as opposed to, Hey, what are the business problems going to be tomorrow that come up? I mean, we, we even, God, this, this has been a long time ago. We had, I think outlaw maybe maybe Jay Z you went we went to this one meetup this has been years ago where somebody I think from GitHub 
was talking about their interview strategies and he would basically be like, Hey, um, this is what we're trying to do. Um, design your schema or your data structure layout. And then he would actually purposely, as soon as they did it, let's say that they went to um, a many to many type setup or a one to many type setup, he would throw a monkey wrench at them right after that and be like, okay, well now I have this situation. What are you going to do? And it was to force them to be like, Oh, you have to change your data structure now. And, and that's why, like, when I think about this, I'm like, well, should you, be trying to tailor your data storage needs for this as opposed to, Hey, put the right application constraints in place. Right. So it's an interesting question. And and I totally agree. Right. Like they could have completely designed this different, but then what kind of monkey wrench could you have thrown at and been like, okay, that data structure is now terrible for this next use case. It was, uh, that was you and me. Jay-Z wasn't there. It was stack overflow. Stack overflow. And they did a mock interview, a live mock interview and it was one of our favorite uh, meetups that we went to. Yeah, and it was really they, good. They had a real, you know, the 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 presenter was from Stack Overflow, and I think that the person doing the interview, like I, I don't recall if he was actually applying. I don't believe so. I think because mm. I think it was just mock. But they, he actually walked through like, okay, we're gonna. This is what an interview at Stack Overflow would be like. Yeah, and it was fun. I mean, it was good stuff like that, right? Like basically seeing how people thought. So. Um, all right. So we're going to jump into this thing that, that outlaw actually just alluded to a second ago. So how do you prevent this right skew? So you can do something like this atomic single object lock, but it won't work in this situation because you're doing more than one thing, right? So you can't, unlike where you're trying to lock that object that two players in a game are trying to pick up, there's more than one object. So you can't, you can't just do that. Um, Snapshot isolation also doesn't work in most implementations. This is interesting to me. SQL Server, Postgres, Oracle, and MySQL will not prevent write skew. So none of your big databases out there, probably the top four of the top five, I'd say, um, aren't there. And we could go to that database site that tells you, but those are pretty high up there. Um, so in order to do this, you actually need true serializable isolation. Um, and that's why it doesn't work in those databases. They just don't have that set up. Um, most databases don't allow you to create constraints on multiple objects, but this is where you could potentially use a materialized view or you could use a trigger. And this right here would be the spark of holy wars everywhere because, I, I mean, as I've worked on databases over the years, I've heard so many people that are for triggers and I've heard so many people against triggers. Because triggers hide database logic, right? Like that's, that's what's said. And they also complicate things. So, but the idea here is you can't put a constraint on a table saying that, oh, there can't be two records with this. Like usually it won't let you do something that complex, but you can do it with a trigger, right? So after an update or an insert or a delete, Hey, I can't have more than two records with this setting, right? And then that could, that could throw some sort of error or something or roll it back to whatever the state is. So you can do that, right? You can go in and do this, but again, is it the right thing to do? Who knows? Maybe. I think, was this the portion of the book where they described like maybe creating something else, like another table that you could put a lock on? So like there would be like a that. schedule yeah. table. Yeah. And in the schedule table, you could say like, this is the block of time. I want to select for update that block of time. And then that way you could uh, have like one 
Yeah, that's coming up here in a second. So before we get to that, though, oh. um, they do mention if you can't use serializable isolation, your next best option may to be lock the rows for the update and the transaction, meaning nothing else can ac- access them while the transaction's open. And this, again, is is that select for update that Outlaw was talking about earlier, right? So as soon as you read the record for Dr. One, it, as you're reading it, it's locking that record. And it's not released until you've either updated or, or just released the transaction. So it's it can be done that way, but that's also, that can be hairy. So phantoms causing right skew. Um, There's a pattern. Excuse me one sec. This was your Star Wars movie, right? The Phantom... Uh, the Phantom something. Count that Phantom Right Skew. That's Star Trek. Yeah, um, don't count that movie. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Really? Oh, yeah. man. Terrible. Okay. <laughs> um, so, the pattern is you query for some business requirement. So, for instance, um, in, in the case of the, the doctors, there has to be at least... There has to be more than two on call. You're going to query the database, select star from doctors on call, um, and you need to have at least two records come back, right? So that's that's the first part of your business requirement. Um, the application then decides what to do with those query results. This is step two. Hey, if I have more than two, then I can continue on if this doctor's trying to get off call. If I don't have more than two, then I'm going to say, hey, you can't do anything. I'm not going to update any records, right? The next one. If the application decides to go forward with the change, meaning that, hey, this doctor's trying to go off call, get get off call, then an insert, update, or delete operation will occur. And then that would change the outcome of that previous step where the application decides what's to, what to do when it gets those results back. Um, the important thing here is they said that these steps could happen in a different order. And I've actually seen this done before. So, for instance, what this was doing was um, hey, is it okay for me? It, let me find out if there's more than two doctors on call. If there are, now I'm going to update and take this one doctor off call. You could do it in the reverse order and say, hey, set this doctor, take this doctor off call, then query to see, hey, do I have enough doctors on call? And if you don't, then reset that update, right? So you could do it in the reverse order, but the general idea is the same. Um, and I, I'm curious, what do you guys feel about that? Do you always like checking for the precondition before? Or do you like checking for the 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 condition after doing something? Jeez. Uh, yeah. That's what he said. <laughs> so, you know what's funny oh. is I actually have a preference on this. Um, I generally like to do – this is kind of stupid, but I like to do the pre-check first because it's a less expensive operation. Um, because reading is typically way, way cheaper than writing. But to me, even after you do the right, you kind of need to check again. So you're doing that read twice a lot of times. Um, so, but, but it seems like doing the right and then rolling back to right is more expensive because like, like we've talked about before, like you're writing to write ahead logs, you're doing all kinds of other stuff that is way more, um, IO intense than just doing a read for a record. Yeah, I mean, where my head was at when you asked that question is like, well, out of what I probably thought was just in my head, like an order of operations, I would probably do the check first and then the right second. 
Yeah. And so maybe, maybe that's two things at play. Like maybe there's like a little bit of laziness in there on my part to not like think through, you know, Oh, is there a different way I should be doing this? But then also just the simplicity of like, as I'm thinking through, I'm like, well, I only want to do this if this thing is true. So let me check this condition first and then do the thing. It's basically the equivalent of like, do you prefer to write a, a while statement or a do while statement? Right. Right. And like, typically I would write a while statement first. I say, well, as long as this condition is true, go do the thing instead of the do while where you're like, well, let's write, let's do the thing and then see like, right. Where we, do we keep doing the thing? It's the ask for forgiveness versus ask for permission, right? Like it's that order of operations there, which yeah. is interesting. Um, all right. So in the case of checking for records that meet this condition, you could do that select for update to lock the rows. Um, which, I mean, we've all known about that for a long minutes. time. Yeah. Minutes. Yeah, like years or you know, <laughs> minutes that that existed. I forgot all about it entirely. So, uh, you know, don't feel bad. Yeah. I forgot it existed. Well, here's the part that gets all gnarly. Um, what if you're querying for a condition that checks to see if a record exists? Like the the precondition is the thing that, Hey, if there's records in this table, then, then that's what indicates that something's on. So instead of like what outlaw was talking about earlier, like you're updating a doctor's table. What if instead you had a doctor's on call table that had these records in it? Right. Um, if you're checking for records in a table and they don't exist, there's nothing to lock. Right. So, so there's no way for the select for update could actually even help you out there. So it's, it creates a, a bit of a monkey wrench in this whole, um, you know, locking this, paradigm. Yeah. This is where the scheduling table can help. And the author kind of implied that, that that's a common answer to these types of problems. Like, uh, whether it be like a, a scheduling on call doctors or like appointment or like room conference room booking, you know, like to make sure that the room isn't already, uh, taken that you might like pre-allocate uh, in some table like hey for the next six months here's all the time slots that are available for that conference room and then uh, you would never update that table for it but it would give you uh, in your application something to lock on so so we're going to go to that right now um last thing on this other one is Snapshot isolation avoids phantoms and read-only queries. So what we were talking about were these read-write transactions where you read to see if something's there and then you write if it's not. So the snapshot isolation doesn't help with that. And that's why it's such a tricky problem. I feel like as far as this episode is concerned, like there's like uh, some latency issues or, you know, like some out of order uh, packets <laughs> happening. Cause like every one of my comments have been like, well, that's not, that's for the next section. Right. Like, yeah, he's wanting to get to the to the meaty stuff. So what? And he so just now for the resources we like. Oh wait, right, right. No, we'll come back to that in a second. Oh, so what he just mentioned? There's actually a name for it. It's called materializing conflicts. So this whole thing where you create a table of all combinations. This is what kind of kind of sucks about it. Honestly, is you create this Cartesian product of of every possible combination. So he was talking about scheduling for a room, right? You have a meeting room that people can go and, and lock up for a time. So 
you're going to have to figure out what increments that people are allowed to book this room, right? So is it every five minutes? Is it every 15? Is it every 30? Like, so, so now you have to figure out, do my time slots look like 10 o'clock, 10, 15, 10, 30, or do they look like 10, 10, 01, 10, 02? Like, so there's already a problem you have to solve up front, which is a nasty one, right? Then, then on top of that, you have to figure out, okay, well, how am I going to set this thing up to where there's no overlaps and people don't hit this? Because now you're going to have to lock these objects as you're creating these bookings and all that. It gets really nasty. And that's one of the things that they call out is when you're doing this and it's truly a Cartesian product, right? Like every single possible um, combination of time slots that can, that can happen. You're materializing conflicts because what you're saying is you're taking these phantom rights that could have occurred and you're turning them into lock records. So it, it still doesn't, records. yeah, yeah, lockable records. It still doesn't map well for materializing conflicts in my mind, but whatever. Um, yeah, and um, you know, we mentioned that game thing where, like, you know, we both grabbed the same object. Okay, fine, we could lock on that. But now, if we're trying to place them on the same spot, like, you get a Cartesian the product of all the pixels on screen. You know, like, you I'm trying to it. place an object that's like ten by ten, and I want to put it starting at pixel. Like, oh, geez, no, you can't. No, do you it. can't do it. It's, it's too much data, and it would it would bog down your thing. But this is where they say, hey, this is effective. Like, this is a solution, and it can be done. But it should be a last resort because it's really hard to do. And and the errors that you end up creating out of this are really hard to figure out. Like, it's just it's a difficult thing to do if you think about it. And the other thing that they call out, if you want to be a purist about this, is it is a nasty leakage of your storage layer into your application tier. Right. Because yeah. you're only doing this because you need your database to effectively be able to make sure that there's not a conflict that comes up. So you're, you're now exposing that to other areas. Yeah. Last resort. You know, last now that resort. we're done the episode, I came up with a perfect example of the shared object stuff. Minecraft. Like that's the game where you have shared objects in the world that people can kind of manipulate and stuff like. Mm, yeah. Totally. Figures. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll have links to this book and other uh, things in the resources we like section. But now it's time to head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah. Um, first, uh, so uh, we've talked a little bit about BuildKit before, which is like, uh, you know, kind of a next evolution of Docker builds. It's uh, really efficient, has a, a lot of cool tricks that are kind of almost like hidden. You know, it's... Um, it's tough to try and evolve what they've got now and add new functionality that changes old functionality. And so you kind of have to opt in for some of these things in different ways, like either by passing a flag to say use build kit or setting like a syntax flag at the top of the file to say, Hey, we're using newer features. Uh, so it's kind of tough, but it's so worth it. There's so much cool stuff in there. And so I wanted to uh, mention a couple of things that I just found out about. So uh, I think we've even talked about um, the mount flag before, which is a, a way that you can kind of, uh, pass basically dash dash mount inside of a run statement in docker and mount files uh that uh at build time so uh, this is kind of similar to the kinds of things you can do when you do a docker run and you can mount like a volume in that isn't actually part of the container it's a way to kind of share files real real quick backing up so you said it's when you do the run he's talking about the actual run command inside a docker file yeah, yep. inside run the statement. Docker file. So not a Docker run. Yep. This is the run statement inside the Docker file. Yep, and so it lets you mount things in at runtime. 
And what's interesting about uh, the the kinds I'm going to mention now, the, the different kinds of mounts, is that they only apply in the scope of that statement. So I'm mounting uh, the, a directory in that applies only for the things that happen later in this run statement. So uh, one of the flags you can pass, for example, is you can mount and set the type equal to cache and then say, you know, do a build, for example, like a, a .NET build or something. And you're going to mount files that are, um, or you're going to bring in files and it's going to cache them locally. And so that next build that runs can potentially use those files in the same cache. And this is a cache that Docker uh, kind of puts and, you know, hides away in its own little location. But it's a way of um, persisting some sort of files between uh, different builds, which is super cool. Uh, what's tricky, though, is that it does only apply to the same the, the actual statement that does the mount. So it's kind of like a, this weird thing where these files are here and then they're gone. Uh, in in future phases, they aren't uh, they don't exist in future layers of the uh, of the Docker file unless you explicitly copy them. So you can imagine where you like do like a a run statement, say mount type equals cache, downloads the files, and then copy them to my layer or copy some of them to my layer. Uh, that's something you could do. And we'll have a link in the show notes. So cache is one of them. I wanted to mention bind, which is a really cool one too. So we say mount bind, and now I can bind files that are within my Docker context, which means inside the folder that I'm doing the build. And I can bind files in there, and it's kind of like mounting them in, but they only exist for that layer. Why would you want to do that? Well, it's a cool way of bringing in files that you need for builds, for example, without actually bringing them into the layer. So even if you um, were to delete those, well, let's not go there yet. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So you, you combine these files in at build time, and then they don't exist. They're not persisted to any layer. So if you've got some like large binaries or something that you want to do for build, or maybe even your source files that you're going to do a build on, um, then this is a good example where you can say, I'm going to bind these files in, I'm going to do my build, and I'm going to take the artifacts of that build, like either the DLLs or the jars or whatever, and I need to keep those in my image, but I don't need to keep the source files in my image. And this effectively lets you replace the add or copies with this um, build time <laughs> mount. And the advantage here is that those files aren't ever stored in the layer. And we've talked about this a little bit before where uh, a lot of times people don't realize that um, even if you do a delete of files in a Docker file, they're still in the history because that's part of how that, you know, that Docker image came to be. So even though you may bring in a bunch of files, do some stuff with them and then delete them, the, the, um, the layers are still going to be big. So if you're doing, you know, builds and stuff and moving stuff around, like that's part of the history and you're still slipping that data around. So um, even though files are maybe deleted from your final image, they can still kind of end up gumming up the works. Assuming, so this is an interesting way around it. That's assuming that you let the files persist from one statement one to, to another other. statement. So they would be in yes. one layer to the next statement. If you did the something with files and then deleted them as part of the same statement. So you like you and anded double ampersanded a bunch of things together, including the delete, then they're not there. The problem here though, is that you're not going to do an ad or copy and, and something else. Yep. So this, what you're describing is how can I bring those files in as part of a run statement so that I can use them in that run statement without them needing to persist in the layer. Yeah, and that's pretty cool, right? Like, like, but, like you said, it's not something I could do before. 
I think the thing though that's missing for context is like what's a situation where I want files available in the layer or or in the run statement that I don't want to persist. Oh, compile. So in compile, like I only care about the artifacts of my build. I don't need the source files after they've been compiled. So then, so like if you were use Docker as part of your build system, you might have previously done something like a from whatever uh, your compiler might need and then do an add or copy to bring those files into the Docker image and then in a run statement, you might do like a Maven package or a .NET build or whatever. But now because you separated the add and the run statement, the source files persisted in that previous uh, layer. But you're saying the only thing you really cared about was the final jar or DLL that came out of it at the end. But, so I can mount my source directory. But then do you run into... Um, context problems where like because you want to detect that the context changed in order to know to rebuild and uh but i'm assuming that that will still be okay because those files are not part of a docker ignore so it'll still uh it'll still detect that like oh one of the source files changed i need to rebuild this image yeah you got you nailed it so exactly the trick with bind is it only works on things in your context and that way uh, you know, at first I thought it seemed like kind of an unnecessary limitation. Like, why can't I just mount some stuff from another directory? But then I realized, like, oh, it's because it, if it was in another directory, then the context checksum to figure out if the the layer was still valid isn't going to work. So this, uh, you can only bind things in your context. So I think you got another one listed there, uh, secret that yeah. I've actually used in the past, and this is a perfect example of one that is is really good. Let's so. In the past, if you had a Docker file that needed to do something that needed some sort of credentials, right? The only way to kind of do it was to have like either environment variables that were passed into it. And the problem with that is you can always inspect that stuff um, on the layers later and see what those credentials were. With yeah, even C- if you delete them, you can go back in a previous layer. You can go look. back and there they are. Yeah, totally. With the secret, and this is the important takeaway of what Jay-Z is talking about here with all of these, is when you use these, the bind or the secret or any of these, you do it in that run statement, it never gets persisted to any layer. But you get to use all of the things that you did. So you can bind a secret on your layer, and let's say that you're pulling something from Artifactory or from Docker or whatever, and you have to pass credentials. That secret's used on that run command, but it's never persisted anywhere in the layer. So it's ephemeral. It gets thrown away at, during the build kit build of this thing. So um, that's the important part is nobody could go back through and then scrape the stuff from those layers that you didn't want prying eyes to see. Yeah, it was fantastic. And uh, the next one, SSH, is similar, except instead of environment variables, it's for SSH keys. So you, can give, you can give access to your uh, SSH keys in your Docker build without persisting them. So if you need to do some sort of stuff with certificates or whatever that are sailing on a build machine, then you can go ahead and just borrow those SSH keys from the build server safely because they're never saved to any sort of layer, and so no one can go and steal your keys later. Uh, and then the final one, uh, tempfs is uh, I'm not familiar with tempfs. It sounds like it's almost like a like a kind of a temporary directory that's all in memory. 
So I don't know. Sounds like something that might be kind of fast and interesting. I should learn more about, but I just I didn't get a chance to explore that one. Yeah, th- this if if you do Docker builds, definitely look at this stuff because it is it, it will open your eyes to some possibilities and probably solve some problems for you, especially security related that that you would want to know about. Yeah, and some of these are like really hard problems to solve without this. Like it's it's kind of crazy to think that uh, build kit still feels experimental, but it's not. You know, it's it's the way forward. It's the future. It just in order to maintain backwards compatibility, it you almost have to like bolt the stuff on, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Oh, we'll have a link in the show notes. All right. Well, then uh, my boring tip of the week, by comparison, uh, well. <laughs> I'm gonna now. I guess what I'm dreading is that now, like I'm imagining my next pull request, I gotta go and update a bunch of Docker files. Um, <laughs> thanks, Jay Z, for more work to do. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So uh, I attended a conference recently, and one of the things that uh, came out of it, there was a whole bunch of things. So I'll, I'll probably like trickle in things um, over time, but. Uh, one of the first I thought I would share was there was a Google presentation and they gave, uh, they showed a Google cloud architecture diagramming tool. So the cool thing about this was that one of the things I liked about it was like, you kind of had this, like, we've talked about like ubiquitous languages, right? But what if you had that for like drawing, right? To where like everybody's using the same things to draw whatever, you know, you're doing, but also, what you could do is you could draw out what you want for an environment in the Google Cloud Architecture Diagramming Tool, and then you could say, hey, go deploy this thing, and Google would go deploy it from your drawing. I thought that was super cool. That is sweet. Yeah. So uh, so I'll have a link to that, and then the next one that I am super, super excited. So this is like coming to a Slack near you. Um, it hasn't been released yet to the best of my knowledge as of this recording, it's still only been announced, but, um, Salesforce who owns Slack have introduced a chat GPT integration for Slack. And there's a bunch of capabilities like where the Slack could, the, the bot could automatically respond, you know, to messages for you and things like that, which, okay. Now we're going to be now this is going to be interesting where we can't even be bothered to respond to our own uh, messages, you know, like messaging our friends has gotten to be too complex. Like we need a bot to do it for us. But my favorite feature that they showed was a summarize capability. So we've all been it doesn't even have to be slack. I don't care if it was a an old school forum or if it was a, a Google Hangouts or a Google chat, if that's what your company uses teams, whatever. We've all been in those situations where there's like some common thread where a bunch of people are writing and you, you, you like an, like an insane person take the evening off to go spend time with your family and get some sleep or, you know, you go out for the weekend or whatever. But meanwhile, while you're in your absence, there was a whole bunch of things going on. And one of the things they showed was this summarize capability where I don't know the exact syntax of it. So I like I described it in my show notes as like slash chat GPT space summarize. But the point is, is that it, the bot would summarize everything that you've missed in that thread and like all the key points of like, Hey, you need to be here at this date or turn blah, blah, blah. in. like, 
I cannot wait for this feature to become more uh, uh, commonplace. So a an automated TLDR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty Amazing. much, yeah. Except they they decided to use more letters with summarize, but yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So mine th- this this was born out of some things that I needed to do this week that ended up being pretty helpful. So. Um, if you're ever trying to debug anything in Kubernetes, it can be a bit of a pain, uh, depending on what you're trying to do. Like, let's say that you have a pod where a container just crashes over and over and over. If you've ever tried to shell into it, it'll kick you out like three seconds after you're in it. Like there's a lot of things that can happen. Well, <clears throat> I found it's actually a Kubernetes thing. There's these ephemeral debug containers. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And what you can do, hold on one sec. Figured I'd clear my throat without killing you guys. Um, so there's actually a command that you can run that is kubectl debug dash it for interactive terminal. Um, then name it, whatever you want to call it. In this case, they did ephemeral demo. And then you pass in an image like BusyBox. So if you're not familiar, BusyBox is one that people use a lot of times. It's basically just sitting in a wait loop, but it's so you can sit on, on terminal and chill and do other things. And then you tell it the target that you're trying to use. And this will tell it which pod to basically um, attach to. And so it'll launch a debug container and a pod that you want it to go into. And so it's really nice if you need to get in there and take a look around, like maybe you're having networking problems you need to see what's going on there. Maybe it can't talk to something else or whatever. So this is a really good way to be able to launch a debug container, the Kubernetes way and take a look at things. Um, I have a link in the show notes for that. And then I couldn't find a link for this one, but this is something that somebody pointed me to the other day. So uh, this is in Google Cloud. Uh, I'm sure that Azure and AWS probably have something similar, but this has to do with logs. So if you're taking a look at logs, a lot of times, you know, there'll be a time constraint on what logs you're looking at, right? So you go up there and and if you hit the log explorer, it might just be the most current hour, right? Well, Let's say that you know that there's an error that happened four hours ago that you need to see. Well, a lot of times when you're looking at logs, you kind of need to see a little bit before and a little bit after that one error that you saw. And so you might need to see, I don't know, five minutes worth of stuff. There is a feature in Google Logs to where you can say, hey, show me entries around this time. And that around this time feature is amazing. So if you click the edit time thing down at the bottom, there'll be a selection for around this time. You can put in the time of the thing that you're looking for. Then you can say plus or minus 30 seconds, plus or minus a minute, plus or minus five minutes, that kind of thing. And so instead of you having to go in and like manually hand type in your time ranges, you can put in the one time thing and then tell it, Hey, give me everything within a minute on either side of this. And it's really nice for being able to go in and quickly see what you're looking for. And if I can find, if I can find a link to it, I will. Otherwise I'll go screenshot it and and show you where it is in the UI. Or maybe just an example of the query. Like or, or yeah, yeah, that'd work too. Huh. If only yeah, we had so, a way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we'll include the log lyrics. Um, no, I'm just kidding. That's all I could think of, though, when you described, like, uh, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, it's what rolls downstairs. 
loan or impairs. Okay. So, uh, subscribe to us if you haven't already on iTunes or Spotify. I don't know. Maybe like somebody said, Hey, check out these crazy guys. Um, and they sent you a link or something or whatever, or you heard it on, on, you know, their car while they were driving. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Spotter, Stitchify, all the major podcasting apps, uh, or platforms. And uh, if you haven't already left us a review, like I said before, we would greatly appreciate it. You can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review while Alan looks puzzled at something I said. Didn't you say Spotter, Stitchify? Did, did he say that? Yeah, this is yeah. the platform. You know, you okay. I thought he did. <laughs> I thought he did. We're going to check the record, uh, but uh, the gentleman from Georgia does not believe he said. <laughs> we got to roll that beautiful bean footage back. <laughs> That's interesting. All right. So, yeah. Hey, while you're up there at Spotter and Stitcherify. Um, <laughs> I did not say that. I swear you did. I swear. Okay. Um, I might be having a stroke. I might be. <laughs> I might need to call for medical assistance. Either you did or I did. And that's what I'm really concerned about. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, hey, so while you're up there, make sure you check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And make sure you send your feedback, question, rants to our Slack channel. Yeah, and we got a Twitter, at CodingBlocks, so you can go to CodingBlocks.net and find all our sausage links there at the top of the page. Yeah, you always say sausage links, too. And I'm like, I think he said sausage links. That's not what I heard. Man, I swear. All right, I'm having a stroke. I think so. Yeah, I think it's Alan, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. Awesome. Something's Thanks, going guys. On, I'm going to the doctor. <laughs>